Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Vasily Saroglu. He is full professor of psychology at the UC Louvain in Belgium, with expertise in psychology of religion, personality, social and cross-cultural psychology, moral psychology, and the psychology of positive emotions. So, Dr. Saroglo, welcome to the show. It's a huge pleasure to everyone. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Ricardo. So, today we're going to focus uh, our interview on religion. And uh, I've already talked about religion on the show several times. I mean, it's one of the topics I explore the most, I think. But it was mostly done with anthropologists and neuroscientists. So tell us first, from the perspective of psychology, what is religion or religiosity? Typically, when we think from a very, let's say, um, American perspective, we think of religion as uh, search for meaning, beliefs, meaning system. That's true, but that's only one aspect of religion. Religion means not only co cognitive uh, uh, processes, but also emotional processes, then rituals. So we have beliefs, meaning on the one side, but also emotions uh, and rituals. Third, we have um, morality, or at least a, a need for righteousness, righteousness, um, being correct in everything you are doing. And the fourth dimension is um, belonging to a community that to a group that has uh, the perception that it has a, per a prestigious history and it will have a, an eternal past. So these four dimensions that I have called in one paper, uh, believing which in continuation of previous research, of course, by others, believing, bonding with others and God through rituals, behaving morally, correctly and belonging. So these four Bs are necessary to define religion. If we don't have this four and we have only two or three, this is something similar, but not clearly religion. So you may have philosophy, you may have existential questions, you may have just ritual for fun or for uh, to enter in the second year of the university, but that's not religion. Religion, you need the, all the four elements, um, of course, in reference to a transcendence. Mm -hmm. uh, I would like to ask you now, just to set the stage, let's say, about some two distinctions that you talk about in your work. So, first of all, between intrinsic religiosity and extrinsic religiosity. So, what's that distinction about? Yeah, that's a classic distinction in psychology of religion back in the late 60s, I think, or early 60s. And it comes from mainstream psychology of motivation. The idea is that you do things in life because you are intrinsically motivated. So you are doing sport because really you like sport and the benefits of sport. So the same for religion, because you like faith, spirituality, the experience is there. Or you have an extrinsic motivation. You are doing something for other reasons. For instance, you are doing sport because you want to, to meet uh, a partner a partner in the in the garden or so, where you are doing uh, jogging or you for religion you practice or you go to church just to make friends or to uh, have voters if you are a politician etc so that has been a classic distinction that has some relevance i would say but today let's say we try a bit to abandon that for two reasons first 
because again there was a kind of American ethnocentrism there in the idea that only intrinsic religion is good, extrinsic is bad, and then you have Judaism or, for instance, Orthodox Christian world where the ritual is very important. If you don't practice well, you are not a good Christian, something like that. And the second reason is that in secular countries, um, in the secular Western European countries, at least today, there is no more reason to be religious for extrinsic reasons, mainly. So more and more people who remain religious, who are or become religious, it's for intrinsic motivations. Mm -hmm. And that changes a bit the picture. Uh, and what about the distinction between devotional religion and coalitional religion? Yeah, that's um, uh, uh, colleagues of mine that have, um, let's say, had this nice theorization. If I remember well, it was Hansen and Rosayan back in the in 2007, uh, six in a paper. So they summarize in that way many, a variety of forms, um, um, religious forms. And I like the idea because across all models of classification of religious forms, that makes sense to say, okay, there are two dimensions. You have the individual dimension, that is more, let's say, prayer. You are individually in contact with God, with um, faith, with uh, spirituality, etc. And this individual part is more the devotional part of religion. But all religions till today have also the social part, the institutional part, the group, the collective part. So this is so the two parts, so the individual, the devotional, and the coalitional uh, are inherent to religion. Now, that has been, let's say, classic. What we see today, of course, more and more is that people, let's say, privilege or like more, invest more on the individual part, the devotional part. And this approach is what we today uh, perceive as spirituality. And then there is the idea that the religion is bad and then at least it's a bit old stuff and then it's, um, let's say, um, outdated because it represents this institutional and coalitional um, dimension. Why coalitional? Because there is the idea that you are an in-group, you like the others in the in-group, but then, of course, you make a coalition against others or being indifferent with regard to others. And yeah in a universalistic, let's say, uh, um, ethic perspective that does, this is not very much appealing to, to believers or to spiritual people. Mm -hmm. From a psychological perspective, does it make sense to distinguish between religiosity and spirituality? And if yeah. so, what would be that distinction? Uh, I like the idea you say, from a psychological perspective, because theoretically you can, we can conceptualize yeah. many things, but yeah, psychologically, first, there is an overlap, okay? It's not so clear that people are uh, people are very spiritual and they hate religion, no. Uh, and if you see if you see the data across studies, it's clear. There is some correlation. People who are more religious versus non-religious, they tend also to be more spiritual than non-spiritual. Now, there are two ways to see the, the issue. So historically, if we think in terms of traditional religious perspective, Spirituality was part of religion. So, uh, if you take even theology, you have um, spirituality as the kind of uh, the part, the internal part of your internal actions uh, with regard to your emotions, your your ideas, etc. And this right. internal work, that's spirituality within religion. Mm -hmm. But that's a bit, let's say, traditional. Today, 
uh, more and more um, emphasis is given to spirituality as a kind of post-religious attitude, I would say. And then we see some similarities in terms of personality, but also we see some differences. And the big difference is, of course, that spirituality is much more individualized as an approach, so it's not coalitional. You are more independent or totally independent from religious tradition, religious institution, etc. But you share with traditional religion this need for connectedness with others and this um, motivation to value compassion, prosociality, and of course belief in a transcendence. Then the, everything, everything has meaning, destiny. There is some reason why we are here, etc. And that's also common. I would say, yeah, that would be a bit uh, similarities and differences between the two today. But then this way to see things things applies at the moment only in Western secular countries. In traditional religious countries, the separation between modern spirituality and traditional religiosity is not yet, uh, has not yet arrived. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would like to ask you now a little bit about religious fundamentalism and what characterizes it psychologically. So what is it and when it comes to with psychology, are there, for example, specific personality traits, conservative or liberal social or political attitudes, and cognitive and emotional needs that push people toward religious fundamentalism? Yeah. From the believer's perspective, you have two positions. If you are fundamentalist, you say I'm religious like the others, even I am better religious people. If you are not fundamentalist, you may have the perception that ah, that's not religion, that's not me, my religion is not fundamentalist. So psychological is very interesting. It's a very interesting question. Uh, what are the commonalities between mere religiosity, common religiosity, so religious belief practice, and fundamentalism? And I would say yes, it's a bit like it's not something other. So fundamentalism, of course, it's more intense religion, but it it also represents more specific needs. Uh, not totally different, but in a more intense way, in a more extreme, perhaps, way. So cognitive needs, clearly, need for certainty, intolerance of ambiguity, and then this uh, results on dogmatism and inflexibility in your beliefs. Mm -hmm. In terms of emotional needs, clearly, research shows that there is association between fundamentalism and negative emotionality, guilt, obsessionality, um, kind of thing around Philip, that something is very wrong with the world and myself, something like that. And then third, in terms of morality, there is this kind of excessive thirst for purity. I mean, you need to be clean for everything. Mm -hmm. That's obsessionality. And in terms of identity, because previously we spoke of coalitional religion, then it becomes not only a very strong identification with your in-group, but also uh, very negative attitudes about the out-group. And mm -hmm. then almost, um, let's say, certainly feeling of superiority and perhaps discrimination of the outgroups. So a question we recently asked in our research is, are there different forms of fundamentalism? You can imagine a cognitive fundamental dogmatism, fundamentalism as a cognitive dogmatism, or fundamentalism as a excessive oppositionality of purity and morality or as a very negative religiosity. And what we found is that all these components contribute to, to fundamentalism. And that seems to be a bit universal across religious, sorry, across religious cultures. Yeah, yeah, that seems a bit universal. So 
conceptually, we can imagine that people are only dogmatic without being, let's say, guilt, without feeling guilt, uh, or they can be just conservative without being fundamentalist in terms of dogmatism. But empirically, all these three, four aspects go together. Yeah, so mm -hmm. that's a, it's a system. It's a, then you cannot resolve easily fundamentalism by just uh, making people feel a bit happier. Huh? So it's a much more structural stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and talking about emotions, there's also a distinction between religious orientations that are marked by positive emotionality and joy, for example, and also religious orientations more marked by negative emotionality, like anxiety, fear, guilt, etc. Correct? Uh, more than one, 100 years ago, William James this, already distinct, uh, made the distinction between, let's, let's say, religiosity marked by he, he called that six owl. So you are really feeling that the evil is everywhere. And then the world is uh, really dominated by evil. And then you have to fight. And then it's more like Kierkegaard, I would say. Like, yeah, the, 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 there is a kind of melancholy about the, the human existence. Eh? And then there is also the other form, as we mentioned, a kind of naive happiness. Then you are positively oriented to, to, to everything, um, love, benevolence. Um, trust everybody, etc. So the two are present and uh, empirically, yes, uh, globally, we cannot say religion is more the one or the other because the mm -hmm. two um, the two personality tendencies are there. And let's say from both sides, people find something interesting in religion and to mm -hmm. be attached to religion. Eh? You may, let's say, uh, think always about David and uh, or, or, um, last judgment after your death, or you may feel always happy about the paradise and then the connection with God. So the two are there together. Now, very, very recently, and this is unpublished because I have no time to rewrite to make the revision, but we found that this difference also applies to cultures. So you may have religious cultures where religion more translates more this kind of negative emotionality, guilt, anxiety, um, shame, etc. And then you have some religious cultures that are more, especially, of course, the American culture, even the American fundamentalism in some, in some cases, exceptional cases, more marked by this joyfulness and then um, optimism that uh, things will go always better and are good inherently. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, I would like next to ask you about uh, what is psychologically distinct between believers and non-believers. But just before we get into that, uh, I have another question. So when it comes to studying religion scientifically, what is it that uh, fundamentalist religious people and anti-theistic uh, uh, non-religious people or anti-theistic uh, atheists get wrong about it? Because, I, I mean, I, I think that they get some things wrong about how religious sh uh, religion should be approached scientifically. Correct. Um, let's say in general, no. Right? That means everybody is right or has the right to, to think every, what he, he or she likes about religion. So I don't have a problem with that. In research, let's say in psychological research, of course, sometimes, let's say the researchers 
before of their own attitudes, they have, let's say, their stereotypes about uh, what should be or should not be psychology of religion or even mm-hmm. uh, whether this field should exist or not. So, of yeah. course, if you are fundamentalist, you don't like uh, often the, the results from psychology of religion because sometimes there are negative results and then you have to question yourself. Now, right. the, um, throughout my experience of uh, 25 years uh, of uh, reviewing and uh, reading and um, especially reviewing or being reviewed by others, it's amazing, of course, you may have uh, the same um, data results. So the fundamentalists will say, ah, goodness, your negative results about religion is, is because you didn't measure religion religiousness well. And then the um, fanatic atheists, let's say, as reviewers, um, um, we try to say, no, no, there is nothing about religion. All this is uh, an artifact of uh, of your measures. Um, and there is nothing unique about religion. So just mm-hmm. forget uh, there is no reason to study it. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that's the bit the kind of situation in the results. But okay, but means that's very marginal. So the field continues. And the solution, of course, is uh, when you have many uh, labs, many laboratories across countries that study things and then they have convergent evidence, then you are sure that all these, let's say, ideological um, stereotypes in the mind of fanatically pro-religious or fanatically anti-religious, even scholars, are put uh, on the margin and then, let's say, research and science advances. Mm-hmm. Never mind people's... Uh, yeah. So, but why are there believers and non-believers? What are the psychological differences between them? Yeah. Um, first, uh, it's amazing when we realize that there are always there are always have been believers and non-believers. Even in very religious countries, you have yeah. always people they may practice because of social pressure, okay? Mm-hmm. But when they are there, they don't believe. They are obliged to say prayers or to play the game. But, okay, they are non-believers, in te- uh, let's say, in their interior. Um, and um, today, of course, we can, even in very, very, very secular countries, you always have religious people. And if not religious people, in the traditional way of thinking, you have spiritual people, as I said before, like a kind of post-religious, let's say, attitude. Now, why there are both of of them? First, of course, it's tradition, socialization, education. You can imagine that if people have been religiously educated versus uh, atheistically educated, this has some impact, of course. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, there are personality differences. So, um, if you have a certain personality profile or characteristics, and if you have certain values preferences, there are more, there is more chance to be or remain or become religious versus there are more chances if you have other kind of priorities in values or other personality characteristics, there is more chance to to, to become atheist or to remain atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems, yes, that the world has always been plenty of believers and plenty of atheists and perhaps there is some uh, reason for that. Uh, perhaps both of them, let's say, or both attitudes have functions that have been, let's say, perhaps uh, useful for 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 the for society or for 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 human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when it comes to those personality traits, do we know what they are? 
Uh, if we take the classic, the classic now it became classic because it's uh, 25 years now or 30. But let's say now the classic dominant model of big five uh, traits of personality. Clearly, religiosity correlates with the factor called agreeableness. That means being mm-hmm. nice, kind, empathetic, prosocial, or yeah. at least having this disposition. Mm-hmm. This does not mean that necessarily in every moment you will be prosocial, sacrificial, altruistic. Eh? But you have this kind of disposition to be oriented to others and have this kind of perspective taking. So that's one important uh, characteristic, and it seems um, universal across culture, across religions. Mm-hmm. So the size of the effect may be bigger or smaller, but this is totally universal. And second is the less strong or less universal, but still it is pretty present, conscientiousness. Another personality characteristic that means um, you want order in your life, in your internal and external life. So this, there is this kind of inhibited aspect of conscientiousness, not impulsivity, for instance. But also you want to to have goals, to succeed things, to not, let's say, uh, uh, die and then as if you did nothing in your life, you have to do something, something like that. So it's a kind of proactiveness. So these are the two main personality characteristics. If we take the other three of the big five that are extraversion, neuroticism and openness to experience, then there is variability. That means religion attracts both open-minded and closed-minded people, both extraverted and non-extraverted, and as you say, uh, you mentioned previously, people with neuroticism or people with emotional stability. So yeah, that's that's the personality characteristics. Yeah, that uh, so again, it's not black and white. Eh? Uh, but if I translate that in terms of probabilities, in, instead of 50-50, that means everything is possible. You may have 60-65% on the one side, 35 on the one side. So if you have, let's say, 100 of believers, you may have 65% who are agreeable. If you have atheists, you may have 35% of them who are agreeable. Yeah, so that's a bit uh, yeah. um, the situation. And in terms of psychology and particularly about cognition now, um, we hear frequently from atheists that religious people are less intelligent or have lower cognitive ability, but is that correct? It's almost a tricky question because the answer, there are some empirical answers today, but are a bit too global. So there has been a meta-analysis showing that, yes, mm-hmm. there is a negative effect of religiosity on intelligence, all aspects taken together. Mm-hmm. But then there, there was another paper that showed that most of the effect was due to education. This means that across the world, across countries, um, there are there is small effect of education. So you, the more you are educated, the less you may be religious, and this may be the explanatory factor be, be behind this low intelligence effect. But first, the effect is very so. First, there is this issue with education. Second, the effect is very uh, very small. We, it seems that it is 12 or 13 in terms of correlations. But most importantly, uh, what it is clear if we, let's say, if we cut intelligence into different components, what it is clear is that there is an issue with what we call analytic thinking. Uh, what it is clearly um, characteristic of religiosity is the preference for intuitive thinking mm-hmm. over analytic thinking. So analytic okay. thinking is 
a kind of more scientific, rational, uh, Aristotelian, I would say, or, or formal logic uh, thinking. Intuitive thinking is a, a, a thinking that it is more associated with creativity, art, and uh, implies the belief that things are interconnected, everything is interconnected, mm -hmm. uh, there are secret connections that we cannot even see, etc. So mm -hmm. it's not non-intelligent because there are some research now in children, for instance, and adults showing the heuristic um, quality of um, intuitive thinking. Um, but clearly in terms of uh, what of the two ways of thinking is the more appropriate for scientific thinking, this is analytic thinking. The, so this is the, the clearest characteristic of cognitive style that characterizes more the religious people versus the atheist people. Mm -hmm. And less than a global, let's say, sense of intelligence. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, and do we know why people convert to or deconvert from religion? So let's say that we have an atheist that converts to any sort of religion out there or vice versa. We have a religious yeah. person that becomes an atheist. Do we know why that happens? Of course, we know more why uh, how religious people deconvert. Huh? Uh, sorry, no, no. There has been traditional research on conversion because for the, let's say, non-believer scientists, it was totally bizarre why people, let's say, uh, one day they become religionists, yeah? so the conversion. And it is more recent, let's say, as a topic, uh, why people who are secularized as atheists, uh, they become religious in, in that way. Okay, uh, I would say it's the same kind of processes, in fact. So if we take the four Bs I, I mentioned before, eh? mm. the four Bs imply, apply cognitive needs, emotional needs, moral needs, and um, uh, identity, social needs. So, so what happens here? In terms of cognitive development, cognitive maturation, you may one day discover that, okay, goodness, these dogmas, etc., are really bizarre. They don't have much sense. And then that's a reason, let's say, to take some distance from religion. Or at the opposite, your cognitive maturation may help you to say, okay, wow, there may be some spiritual uh, flavor in life, in the world, etc. So that's the first example. Take now the emotional stuff. Emotional, uh, especially relational insecurity, in particular regarding the attachment to parents, has been, let's say, the most... Uh, striking and universal across studies and decades characteristic of religious conversion. Yeah. So if you are unhappy with your parents, let's say, even if you have been religiously educated, this is a reason to take some distance. Mm -hmm. But the same may be the case for atheists who want to be religious. They, they, if they have received a, a, an education with secularism, but there has been and secure attachment with the parents, again, they are also looking for more security. And God is a secure figure. Third, morality. The same, you take the moral hypocrisy. Eh? So if you are a believer and then you see bad things in the church, etc., you say, goodness, what's going on here? You take your distance. You don't want to identify with a, a bad, morally bad community. Right. But moral also uh, issues may um, push 
non-believers to become religious, for instance, especially today, you may have, let's say, adolescents, young people who say, goodness, this society has become very much individualistic, very much materialistic, um, capitalism, etc., and they want something uh, different. That's moral motivation to become religious. And uh, to, to finish with the fourth aspect, the identity stuff again, uh, if you want to, 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 to belong to a prestigious community, etc., then you may convert to a, a religion that appears really fantastic or a sectarian group that promises you salvation and glory, etc. Or at the opposite, perhaps if you uh, want to broaden your um, in-group, etc., and have more universalistic uh, identity by saying I'm a citizen of the world, I suppose this helps more people to become atheists or non-believers by saying, wow, goodness, we are all in a big community in this world and there is no reason to have this kind of religious distinctions between religious groups and different gods, etc. Yeah, it have been a bit long, but okay, I think it's amazing how the processes <laughs> are pretty similar. Uh, it's the change, psychologically speaking, it's the change in terms of convictions that it is important. Um, rather than the outcome, in fact, yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. So another question, there are people that argue that we have, uh, we and uh, children even have a natural predisposition toward religiosity, that we are naturally inclined to believing in supernatural entities, gods, all of that. So do you think that there's good enough evidence to support that idea? At the moment, let's say, uh, empirical research in the last uh, 15 years goes to the two di directions, and sometimes it comes from people who belong to the same uh, uh, laboratory in the beginning. It's amazing. So the one results where authors conclude that, okay, they are in favor of the natural inclination hypothesis, and other results clearly showing that, no, everything is about education, if the society, your parents, present you um, Santa Claus or God as real and ready to help you and giving you gifts, then you believe. If not, you don't believe. So, empirically, that's what I can say. Now, both positions at least, um, let's say, converge on the following. That religious beliefs are not unnatural or are not against, let's say, the, 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 the psychology of childhood, something like that. Mm -hmm. So the religious beliefs, as they are, let's say, explicit taught by the adults, mm -hmm. are welcomed by children, something like that. Um, but this is not um, a, a direct proof or definitive proof on whether there is a natural inclination. For instance, there is a natural inclination for existential questions. To ask existential questions. That's clear. Four or five years old, children say, Well, what's going on here? My grandmom is, is dead. What's going on? But the answers cannot be surely taken as a kind of natural inclination. If you say, Okay, there is a paradise, you can also I, probably answer by saying, That's the end and there is nothing else. But of course, we can imagine it's, um, it's a bit more hard to, to say that to a child. Yeah, that would be, let's say, at the moment, the situation on this. But it is a topic to be investigated more in the future, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you now or address two different stereotypes that people have, particularly about adolescents and 
old people. So uh, is it really the case that adolescents are more prone toward rebellious behavior and becoming non-believers? Yeah, uh, let's say if we take the evidence, the evidence goes in favor of this stereotype. But also this comes from, let's say, a period where societies were traditionally religious. Mm -hmm. So if you're an adolescent and the characteristic of adolescents, among others, is that openness to experience increases, exploration increases, impulsivity increases, sexual uh, awareness increases, etc. And you come from a traditional religious family and you live in a traditional religious society. Mm -hmm. So your way to take reflection and to be to kind to have a kind of self-criticism with respect to all this is of course to take some distance. Mm -hmm. So right. that has been the predominant pattern because of the predominant, let's say, past. Now, it is a new reality that has not yet been well investigated, but it seems that in secular countries you may have also not in such an important degree, eh? so it's a minority uh, stuff. But you may have also the opposite pattern. As I mentioned a bit before, uh, when I, I alluded to materialism, eh? you may have some adolescents, adolescents who are unsatisfied with materialism, uh, capitalism, um, social injustice, etc., etc., et and then they may, let's say, um, want to find something else, spirituality. So you, may, you have adolescents now who at 12 years old, they ask to be baptized, for instance. Mm -hmm. So it's a new reality. But I would not put the two realities as numerically equal, clearly. It seems that the, the conversion in the conversions in sec, not it seems, now I have seen that including our data, so it's pretty clear. Numerically speaking, the conversions of adolescents and young people in secular societies are a very small numerical reality. Mm -hmm. But it exists, it exists, yeah. Right. And about the older people, uh, are they really, or they tend to be bigots, as we, <laughs> as we usually think? Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, what was the past? Traditional religious societies, literal understanding of um, heaven and hell, and also the longevity was not so high. So people, let's say, expected to, to, to die at 70, 75, etc. even. Mm -hmm. So in the past, that was a bit, let's say, this stereotype corresponded a bit to reality. Until now, mm -hmm. there, are, there is some evidence that it, this is one major pathway. The more people age and approach, the, the more they approach the death, the more they ask this kind of questions. And it seems a bit more easy to say, okay, I will rediscover faith. And there is also, with regard to this pattern, another also process that we see in terms of nostalgia or coming back to the origin. If you remember François Mitterrand, who was normally an atheist or a secularist, wanted to have a funeral, in, a religious funeral in his village of origin, something like that, a kind of return to where I come from, something like that. Now, that's the traditional, let's say, still present pattern that corresponds to the stereotype you mentioned. But at the same time, human development, social development, moral development become much more complex. We say that in developmental psychology, that there is, there is no one direction. It, it is multi-trajectory, the, the process. The same with religion. So there are more and more cases now of people who, after they educate their children and they get some autonomy from family obligations, mm. they realize that they have in front of them 20, 30 years, 
and they start a new life, taking also distance from religion, etc. So, yeah, it is uh, multidirectional, multidirectional, as we say now. Uh, so you may have, and uh, in Belgium in particular, because Belgium has been one of the first countries to legalize euthanasia, that has been a sensitive topic. So I presume that in cultures where euthanasia is not socially accepted or, or, or legalized, it's a bit more difficult. But in countries where this is legalized as accepted, it's more easy to imagine that life ends and that's all and there is nothing to 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 believe more about that mm -hmm. uh, i would like to ask you now about the relationship between religiosity and altruism because if i understand it correctly it's a bit messy uh, i mean there are people researchers who say that there's clearly a link between being religious and being altruist and others who dispute that but uh, I mean, of course, there are many, many, many religions out there that promote values of compassion, love, altruism and all of that. But even if that's the case, does it really have an effect on people's behavior and then religious people tend to be more altruistic or is that just simply uh, or is that simply something that uh, religious people themselves uh, say they believe or the way they present themselves. Yeah, you're right. It has been, I will not, but perhaps I'm not sure if it is a massy, but wow, I mean, see, people are passionate. I was happy because we started, when I started as a professor in the early 2000s, it was my first project, in fact, the religion and sociality. So it was be, before it became, let's say, a hot topic, but then we had nice uh, results and uh, happily it became a, a very mainstream topic. Mm -hmm. um, let's say, I will really try to give the most strictly pro, uh, close to the data and the evidence answer. Okay. The, the opinion that there is nothing and there is only moral hypocrisy and the religious people are believe that they are compassionate, but in fact they are not different from others. This is excessive uh, attitude that, that does not correspond to the data, right? that they are just altruists in their mind and there is nothing there. That's mm -hmm. extreme and empirically it's not correct. Now, okay. the opposite one that, wow, it's so clear that the religion promotes for sociality and that in general um, altruistic behavior is an outcome of uh, religious faith and practice that also uh, excessive and extreme and does not correspond to data. What we first uh, argue in 2005 in a paper that has been cited, uh, let's say, several hundreds of times now, and all the evidence then it's clear, it corresponds to this idea is that there is some effect. So the religious people are not crazy when or uh, when they say they try to be prosocial or they believe that they are prosocial and they have prosocial values. Something remains if you mm -hmm. if you go there. Um, so they are not paranoid neither. But of course, it's not huge. It's not universal as an outcome. The behavior. It's not in every situation. So I have called that limited prosociality, minimal prosociality, and conditional prosociality. Mm -hmm. Why limit, limited? Because it applies mostly to the in-group. So if you're a religious believer, you may be a bit more prone to forgive your close people or to be more collaborative, etc. Will you like everybody, even your enemies? No, not necessarily. 
but at least you may be more helpful with regard to people you know. So limited potentiality to the in-group. Minimal, why minimal? Because it's low cost. But at the same time, it's like the glass, is it half empty or half full? Who, as psychologists, we cannot expect people to be sacrificial and altruistic in every opportunity, in every situation, in every moment. So there is some effect of religiosity or religious priming on prosocial behavior. Sometimes, in some occasions, it's not so bad. Let's say I would be happy if I have some neighborhoods who are sometimes more prosocial than not at all. So this is minimal. And third, it's conditional. That means it has not to be in opposition with other values or principles that in religious people's mind may be in opposition. So if it is to help your daughter, you will help it here mm -hmm. for different things. But if the daughter comes with Let's say if it's a Christian daughter and comes with a Muslim boyfriend, things become more difficult. Not because you are a bad person, because your mind, the care and um, altruistic values are in conflict with the purity values. And that's the big problem of religious uh, prosociality. So it is limited, conditional and minimal, but it's not nothing. <laughs> it's better to have this kind of stuff uh, rather than not at all. Mm -hmm. To be also clear, this does not mean that athletes are not prosocial. This was not my point. Eh? But quantitatively speaking, there is more chance for a religious person in several occasions to act altruistically, prosocially at least. Prosocially. Mm -hmm. Now, when the atheist uh, acts prosocially, it may be more altruistically motivated. Because there is no uh, hope of reward in a paradise or uh, fear of a punishment, something like mm -hmm. that. So it may be more mature or more intrinsically motivated as altruism in the mind of the atheist. Yeah, that's uh, a bit. I hope yeah, uh, most people would be happy with this kind of uh, conclusion <laughs> that it is equilibrated, I think. Yeah. Otherwise, it is as if we have to say. For thousands of years, we were all crazy to associate religion with uh, compassion. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's about uh, prosociality. But on the other hand, uh, many times uh, religiosity is accused of fueling discrimination, exclusion and violence against people that are not part of the same religion or non-believers. Is that also true? Um, yeah, I would say it's not so deeply, inherently, heavily um, linked, uh, let's say, religion and violence or religion and out-group exclusion mm -hmm. is not, let's say, a necessary link, but historically it has been there and also in traditional religious people and fundamentalist people's mind, there is a problem, that's for sure. And research show, shows that religiosity, even among religious people, implies several kinds of prejudice. Not only ethno-religious prejudice, but this is less present in the secularized world. Mm -hmm. So in um, Western Europe, um, religiosity among Christians no more predicts ethno-religious prejudice. That was the case for traditional religion in America uh, in the previous decades, but with regard to racism. Uh, now, but when it comes to to sexism, when it comes to homophobia, for instance, um, how we call it, sexual prejudice, 
Um, yes, there is a big problem, and it's not even an issue of fundamentalism. Now, does this turn on to violence? Yes, sometimes yes, not necessarily again. But it is clear it becomes legitimation of violence. Of violence. So it becomes a moral justi justification, legitimation of uh, violence, aggressiveness, and uh, certainly exclusion, social exclusion, or discrimination, that's for sure. Um, uh, so there is a tricky uh, stuff here because you can compare, let's say, fundamentalism with fascism uh, regarding to, to this problem, intergroup conflict and racism and exclusion of the others. I think uh, religion has an advantage and uh, a problem there, comparative to fascism. Uh, fundamentalism has an advantage. So for the advantage is that as in the religious um, discourse, there are also ideas of compassion, etc. You can work on this and, they say, and then say to fundamentalists, come on, you are a religion of love, you cannot be violent. This, you cannot say that to a fascist, he doesn't care about love. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that once you leg legitimize this, let's say, exclusion of the others theologically, it's even worse. You are convinced mm -hmm. that you are doing something good and uh, holy, even if it is violence and death. So it's horrible in, in the, on the other sense. Yeah, that's the situation, uh, uh, let's say. But if we see the development of things, there is a kind of attenuation uh, the more you move to, to secularist countries. That's for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, yeah. So, and what about the relationship between religiosity and psychopathology? Is it that religion can be a source of psychopathology or does it tend to be ra rather good for our health and well-being? Um, now I realize it's a nice question in the sense that uh, we can ask that to French people and American people. I'm sure the American people, <laughs> majority will say, yes, religion is good for you. Yeah. The French people who are, not, let's say, educated in a secularist, highly secularist, and uh, as we call that, laicity-oriented uh, society, they will say, no, religion is more psychopathology uh, right. since, uh, let's say, one century or two centuries now. Um, let's say, First, if we take the average religiosity, so the everyday religious belief, practice, etc., overall there is a kind of global positive effect in terms of happiness, well-being, self-esteem, not being depressed, having meaning in life, then uh, overcome difficulties in life. Mm -hmm. That's the universal pattern. Right. And International studies show that this pattern is more clear when you are in religious societies who which societies at the same time are a bit dysfunctional societies, not because of religion necessarily, or not at all, but because they are more poorer societies with more social inequality, with more economic problems. So in these problematic, let's say, societies, religiosity helps terribly people because there are no other solutions. Mm -hmm. So this positive effect of religion on well-being diminishes or even disappears when we go to secular countries. Why? Because there, there are many alternatives. First, there is more social equality, social security, etc. Uh, and second, when there are problems, there are alternatives to, uh, let's say, face with 
uh, this kind of um, deprivation situations. Mm-hmm. So that's the, the, the well-being part, eh? the mental health, uh, the positive uh, aspects of mental health part. Now, does religion create psychopathology? It would be excessive to say that. What it is clear is that if you have a psychopathological personality, in terms mm-hmm. of paranoid personality or in terms of uh, schizotypy or th- this kind of stuff, right. dissociation, etc. Classic religion, as it is about big ideas, uh, the universe, uh, missions of by God, etc. There are material. There is material there to help your um, uh, to 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 color your I don't know paranoia or uh, dissociation, etc. So. The religious ideas are nice candidates to to fulfill um, the the let's say the fragile mind with uh, big missions, paranoid ideas, fear of Satan, conspiracy theories, etc., etc. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, but it is not a causal uh, a causal factor. Uh, the, the only perhaps aspect of I would say psychopathology, where perhaps there is something more inherently causal about religion, is perhaps the excessive obsessionality when it becomes pathological. Um, so, if you see there was this nice um, series, unorthodox, for instance, uh, with this kind of extreme religious orthodoxy in Judaism, uh, and we have this phenomenon in many religions. Um, there is something there where religion does more than just providing ideas. I mean, it creates environments that amplify, yeah, I would say that it creates environments, practices, ideas, close environments that amplify an excessive uh, need for purity and then obsessionality and then a happiness because these people, let's say, are not happy. Eh? They are suffering and they make other others suffer. Yeah. <laughs> But even if religion is not itself a source of psychopathology, could it be that it still attracts, at least to some extent, people who suffer from certain forms of psychopathology? Like, for example, the idea of communicating with invisible entities or hearing voices is something that is very common among people who suffer from schizophrenia and also related to some or many religious rituals out there. Some of them seem very uh, obsessive compulsive. That is something that would have been developed originally by Mm -hmm. people who suffer from obsessive compulsive disorder or something of that kind. I mean, is that correct or... Not. Yeah, no, no, it's a it's a very good idea. Um, you're right. I didn't mention before the idea of hearing voices, um, seeing things that don't exist, uh, having the the feeling that uh, God or Virgin Mary is speaking to you. You see things that don't exist, or um, this kind of stuff. Now, this has been a bit more, let's say, the emphasis in the past century. Um, this kind of extreme mystic mystic mystic-like experiences were more present at that moment. It's my feeling that now, of course, they exist, but it's very minority stuff. It's um, okay. very isolated cases. It does not make a group, let's say, uh, mm-hmm. except perhaps in very, very pathological situations where a sectarian group, 
becomes totally paranoid and then they are preparing to go to to to, to hell sorry to heaven um, immediately etc by making suicide etc um, but overall there are let's say ex- marginal cases uh, um, but even for that kind of cases it's difficult to imagine that these people were let's say with a healthy uh, personality and then puff religious rituals or religious ideas or religious images came and then they changed mind and they were attacked by pathology so as we said the pathology is there and of course you may find uh, in religion beings that speak to you and nobody sees and then you can convince others that you have superior power superior powers yeah. Otherwise, it's very difficult in the secular life how to convince people that you have secular uh, superior powers, <laughs> except if you have much money. But then you, you should to show that you should show that, and then it's difficult. Um, this is why I think the the other part you mentioned, and I mentioned in my previous, let's say, answer, the obsessionality part. I think it's much more present, and then you have, let's say perhaps excessive inhibition of sexuality in adolescence for this kind of orthodox religious groups. Mm-hmm. Um, you have um, kind of neuroticism that it is there, uh, amplified by religion across decades. Um, yeah, but this kind of, and this causes groups and groups eh? and uh, subpopulations. I, 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 um, you can speak, you can think of countries like Greece, Israel, Turkey, for instance, where these kind of situations are very present. But let's say the cases where, let's say, people uh, are doing exorcism to be sure that they will get rid of the Satan, they exist. But it's, let's say, very isolated cases that, that they exist. <laughs> it's nice for quantitative studies. Yeah. But we have only one life, and so I have not been very attractive personally in my uh, research career to dedicate too much time on that. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Fair enough. So uh, I would like to ask you about one last topic, and you've already mentioned several times during our conversation uh, secular society. So I would like to ask you a little bit about the effects or the potential effects of secularization. So uh, is it really the case that over time religiosity has been in decline uh, across the world or or even more so in secularized societies and uh, can we say anything about what might be the future of religiosity i mean should we expect it to be in decline in the future or not yeah it's a, a nice question, but it makes me, let's say, a bit, um, in a, it puts me in a difficult position because Freud already wrote the future of, of religion is the future of an illusion. So what I could, could say today, um, it seems that as secularization increases, religion somehow decreases, not only from as a societal stuff, but also as an individual um, attitude and orientation. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it seems that it is partly replaced by this modern spirituality. So it's mm-hmm. so if we think in that way, I don't see a reason to say religion or spirituality will disappear. Mm-hmm. It will decrease, probably, except if for its reason, for, for several reasons, 
secularization stops eh? because there are hypotheses or that the more so some religions are more prone to fertility yeah. and then if you think in that way the, the very religious reproduce a lot and the atheists don't make many children so perhaps secularization will uh, attenuate mm -hmm. okay so that's in parenthesis but if secularization continues and there is also let's say uh, this is a serious hypothesis because we know from cost cultural psychology that individualism in western terms becomes more and more present so it's attractive mm -hmm. to other countries so we may imagine that society secularize so if societies continue to secularize it makes sense for cognitive special reasons i think not anti-identity reasons that means openness to universalistic identity and seeing the dogmas as a bit too bizarre let's say the trinity or the i don't know i will not enter now to to to, to concrete dogmas but we understand the religious ideas that are beyond let's say human rationality something like that all this stuff appear a bit if not outdated not so attractive or not so credible something like that mm -hmm. so traditional religion may continue to if not decline to attenuate but for the reasons i mentioned before in terms of personality characteristics of believers and non-believers that means yeah. The people who are people who are a bit more agreeable, a bit more conscious, conscientious, a bit more anti-materialistic, uh, mm. don't like individualism, uh, wanted uh, to feel that we are a big community, etc. In the, these people may be more attractive to spirituality. It's not a necessary outcome of spirituality because you can mm -hmm. imagine secular ways, humanism, secular humanism, to deal with these moral uh, aspirations mm -hmm. but my uh, feeling is that spirituality has in addition this kind of quasi-religious elements there is some ritual there is songs there is symbols there is religious past there is wisdom from the past etc and these are let's say ingredients that make a bit more attractive spirituality a bit more attractive than secular humanism at least for several people okay mm -hmm. so if we think in that way I don't know, but I think at least for one century, more spirituality and with a religious flavor will always be there. Uh, but yeah, it's not sure that I will be there to see that too or whatever I will be at that moment if I exist uh, <laughs> in some place at that moment. So it's easy to make this prediction, but it engages only me. Okay, great. So, uh, Dr. Saroglu, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? Okay. Uh, you can just uh, put Vasily Saroglu, Psychology, Religion, and you can find the website in our research center at UC Louvain. Um, I think it's psyreli.org something like that, the webpage, but just put Saroglu, Psychology, Religion, and you will find the webpage, and then you can see um, the publication, but also uh, uh, summaries, uh, um, short notes uh, written for broad audience. But especially, um, there is a, a small book published uh, um, last year, mm -hmm. uh, The Psychology of Religion, that can be read in three hours, uh, published by Rutledge, and then Again, it is uh, uh, written for general audience, not for experts. 
and it may be nice to have a look if you have nothing more serious to do in your <laughs> day. <laughs> okay, great. So I'll be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Ricardo. Um, I was so happy to uh, be part of this uh, adventure and uh, good continuation to your work and um, exploration with others. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting it on Patreon or PayPal. The links are in the description box of this interview. And if you like this interview, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzka and Blanchett Perga, Larson, Jerry Muller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Herbert Gintis, Olaf, Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Castle, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegar, Rui Inácio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, George Pinha, Michael Stormier, Samuel Andrea, Francis Ford, Tiago Nunes, Alexander Dan Bauer, Fergal Cusson, Harl Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, John Nierstand, T. Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hummel, Sardis France, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Dez, Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Puntara, Danners Mani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pablo Stazewski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Hellman, Saima Fzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Doug, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzka, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wiseman, Morten Eichland, Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mau Maria, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Lowacki, Georgios Theophanes, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Ruth Towell, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, João Barbosa, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herrigman, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Gracies, Tom Roth, D. RPMD and Eager N. And special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Staffiniat, Tom Vanagdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Belnick Miller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Alni Cortiz, and to my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Quadriano and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.